titled the message this morning, The Creepers. Now someone said, who are the creepers? They're the children of the watchers. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Nothing, <laughs> nothing, they're nothing to do with the watchers, okay? <laughs> we are continuing this morning our verse-by-verse study in the book of Yehuda. It's a very important book. It's a warning to the church. It's a battle cry. Guarding, telling the church to guard the truth in a world of apostasy. Now, after admonishing his readers to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude, under direction of the Holy Spirit, tells his readers that they needed to guard the faith, and then he tells them, he's he's giving them an idea who it is that he's warning them about in verse 4. He says, for certain persons have crept in, that's where we get our creepers from, they're creeping, All right, they crept in unnoticed. Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Christ. Now, he starts out with four here, which is gar. This is a term telling us that he's explaining what he previously stated. Jude begins to explain why the saints have to contend earnestly for the faith. It's because false teachers have crept into the church. No wonder Jude's plans got interrupted as he sat down to write about a common salvation and had to change and said, I've got to warn you to earnestly contend for the faith. He somehow, we don't really know how, but somehow he received word that these false teachers had infiltrated the church, they'd crept in unnoticed, and so he writes this letter as an urgent warning. Verse 4 is actually an introduction verse, excuse me, on apostasy. And the next three verses give us illustrations of different aspects of apostasy. And we'll look at those verses at some future time. All right. One commentator says this, And they were apostates that Jude is talking about. A man who thinks he's saved, but is not. Now, this is a very typical view of apostasy. Most people would say an apostate is someone who thinks they're saved, but they're not really. Well, is that right? Is that a correct definition? Are, are they someone who just thinks they're saved? Well, we're going to look at that and let you come to a decision here. Before we look at verse 4, though, I think we really need to understand what is, a, what is apostasy? What does that word mean? Because there's a lot of different people have different ideas on this. You know, like I said, most commentators say that the book of Jude is a, Ju- a book on apostasy. So it'd be good if we understood what apostasy was to understand this book. The English word apostasy comes from the Greek apostasia. It's used only twice in the New Testament. It's used in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Here, apostasy is the Greek apostasia, and it means a defection from the truth. It's only used in the New Testament to hear and it's also used in Acts 21.21. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children and not to walk according to the customs. Now, what word here do you think is apostasia? It's the word forsake. Alright, to forsake Moses. See, they were falsely being taught that Paul was teaching Jews to apostatize from Moses. He wasn't doing that, but they were saying that he was. Lexham, the Lexham Theological Word Book says of apostasia, it refers to a rebelling 
or an abandoning of former authority. To apostatize is to fall away, to withdraw. It is an affection. Now, a defection. I'm sorry, not an affection, a defection. Now, are these apostates that Jews talking about, are they believers who have fallen away or are they unbelievers? Well, they must be unbelievers because Jude says in verse 19, these are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Now, if they don't have the Spirit, they're not a Christian. Now, Paul tells us that in Romans 8 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Does not belong to... He's not a Christian, he doesn't belong to God if he doesn't have the Spirit of God. So it seems like these men that Jude talks about are not Christians. But, wait, there's more. Notice what Peter says in a parallel context. 2 Peter 2.1. Peter's talking of the same thing. This is a parallel passage. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. You can see he's talking about the exact same thing. But notice he says denying the master who bought them. Well, the word bought here is agorizo. And agorizo means to go to the market, that is by implication to purchase, specifically to redeem. This word agorizo, to redeem, is used in 1 Corinthians 6.20. If you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Bought there, agorizo. It's also used in Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Again, they are purchased here, agorizo. Now, can it be said that an unbeliever was purchased by the blood of Christ? Well, we see again in Revelation 14.4, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Again, purchased, agorizo. Alright, back to Peter. So this idea bought, agorizo, is the idea of redemption. And Peter says that these false teachers have been bought by the Lord Yeshua. So... I would say they must be believers unless Peter is an Arminian and believes that Christ died for everyone. But I don't think he is because Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Yeshua the Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, we've just recently gone over that. God foreknew them, which means the love relationship. He chose them. Peter was a pre-Calvinist. Okay? He can't be a Calvinist because Calvin hadn't come along yet, but he was a pre-Calvinist, alright? He believed that Yahweh was sovereign in salvation. He chose those who would be saved. So, which is it? Are these apostates that Jude writes to unbelievers? Or are they believers? Well, I think it's obvious that it could be either. And it's maybe both. I think some of them may be believers. Some of them may be unbelievers. 
you know, you, you look at the different words they're using, we'll see this even more as we get into this verse, but there's both. They obviously have to be both. Now remember, apostasy is a falling away. It's a withdrawal or a defection. Now let me ask you something. Can a believer do that? Can a believer fall away? No, you don't want to answer me. All right. Well, the question has to be asked, fall away from what? How fall away? Okay, because let's look at Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Yeshua, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here, holy is hagios, set apart. Brethren is adelphos. Would you say this verse is talking to Christians? They're holy brethren. They're partakers of a heavenly calling. Yeshua is their high priest. These are believers he's addressing. Now let's drop down to verse 12. Take care, brethren, Adelphos, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Who's this warning to? Well, one writer says this is not a reference to Christian. It refers to racial brothers. Unbelieving Jews. Well, contextually, that's ridiculous. Because you go back up to 3.1. They're holy brethren. They're partakers of the heavenly calling. But they're falling away from the living God. Fall away is the Greek word aphistomy. And it means to remove, to fall away. Can a believer fall away from the living God? Again, you have to define that more to really, I guess, know how to answer it. And my answer would be yes. This is not talking about losing eternal life. Because it's eternal life, it's eternal. You can't lose it, alright? Let's just lay that down to start with, alright? It's eternal. He's talking about losing fellowship. He's talking about losing a relationship, a close, intimate relationship with God. He doesn't want them to fall away from that. Apostasy is a believer turning away from the truth. Turning away from God. They're still a believer. Even though you say... They turned away. They can't be a believer anymore. Why? Did walking with God get them salvation? No. So walking away, did it cause them to lose it? No. No. All right? We've gone over this in the last couple of weeks. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, here's a question. Think about this for a minute. Can an unbeliever fall away from the living God? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, right, exactly. How do you fall away from something you don't have? And But here, let's be more specific. The answer to answer that question is, not today. Not today. But see, under the transition period, a Jew who refused to believe in Yeshua would be departing from the living God. All right? They had faith in Yahweh. They trusted Yahweh. But Yeshua comes on the scene and they're like, no, nah, we don't want him. To deny the Son is to not have the Father. As John says in 1 John 2, 3, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. All Jews would fit into that category that reject Messiah. Alright? The one who confesses the Son has the Father. So, an unbeliever today can't fall away because he does. You, can't, you have to have something to fall away from and he doesn't know God. But in the transition period, yes. And that was what he was warning them of. Listen, you Jews in the transition period, don't fall away. Trust Messiah. Come to Messiah. All right, let's look at our text. He says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. 
We could ask the question, who are these creepers? And what do they creep into? We could ask all kinds of questions regarding what's in view here. Exactly is he talking about? Well, they're called certain persons because we don't know exactly who they are, all right? He doesn't define who they are. The phrase crept in unnoticed is a single word in the Greek. The Greek word here is parestuno. It's only used here in the New Testament. Jude does that several times. He uses words only used in his book. It's one of those words that you're just not going to find anywhere else in the Bible. Pares duno is from para, beside, ace, among, and duno, to settle in. It means to settle in alongside, quietly, without drawing attention. We see a similar descriptive verb in the parallel passage again in 2 Peter. He says, they will secretly introduce. This is pares ago. It's also used only here in the New Testament. But the kindred adjective occurs in Galatians 2.4, where it says, false brethren secretly brought in. That's pares actas, which relates to someone joining a group with false motives, with false pretenses. These creepers secretly creep their way into the church. The metaphor is the idea of spies or traitors infiltrating into the camp. And this is exactly what Paul called the Ephesian elders together and warned them about it. He says, from among you, you elders, will arise false teachers, not sparing the flock. So pereistuno is only used here in the New Testament, but it's used outside the Bible in secular Greek to describe the cunning cleverness of a lawyer who sneaks into the minds of the jury or the judge to corrupt the clear thinking. Barclay writes this on Crept in Unawares. He says, the Greek, pareistuno, is a very expressive word. It's used of the spacious and seductive words of a clever pleader, seeping gradually into the minds of a judge and jury. It is used of the outlaw slipping secretly back into the country from which he has been expelled. It's used of the slow and subtle entry of innovations into the life of state, which in the end undermine and break down the ancestral laws. It always indicates a stealthy insinuation of something evil into society or situation. So in Jude's day, these people are they're sneaking in, trying to get into the church for the purpose of corrupting what's going on in that church. Now in Jude's day, they had itinerant preachers. And these guys would had a circuit basically, move around from country to country preaching and teaching. They earned their living from love offerings, and they never really settled down in one place. They just kind of like evangelists, you know, they moved from place to place. And they would teach, so it would be easy for these guys to, you know, get in a place and stick around and start, because they had some level of trust there, and start to corrupt. So maybe maybe these itinerant preachers were the certain persons. You know, they just arrived, they stuck around, and they began to corrupt from inside. But it also could just be members, again, as Paul said in Acts, you know, they're from where the elders, they got in there and they just somehow got their head twisted around and now they've got the wrong thing and they got an agenda and they want everybody to believe what they believe and they're trying to push it on them. Well, Jude tells us these certain persons are those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Now, this translation makes us think about predestination, doesn't it? The King James puts it this way, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Predestination is what God has done in order to save people for himself from the foundation of the world. 
Before he ever created the world, he predestined and ordained a people for himself, the elect of God. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. But this text has nothing at all to do with that. Nothing. This is a terrible translation. Terrible, because it makes us, you know, looks like bored nationers. Young's does a little better job. Young says, having been written beforehand to this judgment. Alright? Now, the words here, marked out, come from the Greek, prographo. Meaning to write previously or to write beforehand. The same word is used in Romans 15 for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Was written in earlier times. Prographo. It's used in Galatians 3.1 where it says Yeshua the Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And there publicly portrayed is prographo. It's used in Ephesians 3.3. Paul says, I wrote before in brief. Again, prographo. In these uses, there's evidently no, there's no implication at all here of ordaining or preordaining in the sense of what we now think of that. Jude is referring to previous writers of scripture. This is something that was written. There's, these guys sneaking in is something that has been written about in the past is what he's saying. And their condemnation has been written about in the past. Isaiah wrote about the damnation of apostates. Jeremiah wrote about it. Zechariah wrote about it. Different prophets wrote about this. Look at Hosea 9.7. The days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented. Because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. He's talking about their judgment. Now, Weist feels that marked out here is a reference to the prophecy of Enoch with regard to these false teachers. And I would tend to agree with him because if you drop down to Jude 1.14, it says it was also about these men, these men who were creeping in, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, Yahweh will come with many thousands of his holy ones. This is a coming in judgment. And he wrote, Enoch wrote about this coming judgment. Marked out here is in the perfect tense, meaning it was done in the past and its effects continue to the present. Jude is saying that the word concerning their destiny was made in the past and is still in effect for today. Their judgment is coming. Their their judgment has been predicted. And it's coming. From Enoch's time to Jude and Peter who wrote about it. Their judgment will come. Now the words long beforehand actually mean in the former days. Just prior prior days this has been written about. Condemnation here is <clears throat> simply krina in the Greek. It's judgment. Jude is referring to the judgment of God on these apostates. And Jude calls them ungodly persons. Now, this is one word in the Greek, asebes. Asebes pertains to violating norms of proper relation to a deity. In short, it means irreverent, lacking proper respect, or impious. It simply kind of means choosing to live life as if God did not exist, without any regard for Him. Asebes means wicked or sinful. This word is used five times in this epistle. It's used here. 
And then it's used four times in verse 15. If you read verse 15, ungodly, 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 you, you, you get the point. He's really trying to stress this. This word is used technically in the scriptures for unbelievers. Look at Romans 5, 6. Paul says, for while we were still helpless, in the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Asebes. The ungodly, that's who he died for. This term is a strong, pejorative term as Paul used it. Christ died for the ungodly. And for meaning here in the Greek, huper meaning in behalf of, instead of, in the place of. This is the doctrine of substitution. Christ dying on behalf of others. And he died on behalf of the ungodly. Back in 4-5 of Romans, Paul said that the God justifies the ungodly. So it's talking about people who don't know God. The unsaved people. Now, these ungodly men are in the church. Then and now. They teach in the seminaries that say they're Christian. They teach in colleges that say they're Christian. But if you have an ungodly person, a person who is void of the Spirit of God, all you have is the flesh. And so if all you have is the flesh under the guise of religion, it doesn't shouldn't surprise you at all that some... Terrible things go on. You know, it shouldn't surprise you that in the Catholic Church, a place that's called religion, a place that's supposed to be, you know, they're worshiping God, where these priests who have sacrificed their lives in a life of celibacy are molesting little boys. And the church protects it, covers it. Only now is it even beginning to come out. How sad is it to go to what you believe is a house of worship. And you have your kid be an altar boy, and you're so proud my son's an altar boy. This sacrificial priest is molesting him. It's just sick. But when you have the flesh, you have nothing else. It shouldn't surprise you. They're just a classic illustration of people who are utterly, absolutely without God, trying to carry on a deception that represents God. When I first got saved, Kathy was Catholic. And her dad said, you know, we will not, well, I'll not give you away if you don't get married in a Catholic church. And, you know, you got to be married in a Catholic church. And I told her, I wouldn't feel married if I got married in a Catholic church. Those people don't know anything about God, you know. So she, so they set up, the parents set up a meeting. Let's go meet. I, I'm a Christian, been a Christian six months. I go meet with this priest. And he's sitting there and he's telling me how righteous he is, you know, and stuff. And, and I, I just was you know, basically tearing apart with the scriptures, you know. And I was, like I said, six months old, but I'm like, you went in this little booth, you know, and you think you are forgiving people's sins, and then you get out of the booth and you go tell all your buddies everybody's sin, you know, and you guys have a little chat, and no, no, when I get, I don't even know. I'm like, you're so full of it. You know, I mean, Kathy just dragged me out of there. She goes, you're going to, we got to get out of here. This is not going well, you know. But, you know, the thing is, when we left there, because we had also gone to see my pastor, and my pastor, you know, encouraged us, you guys got to be on the same you got to be on the same page with this. This is very important. He prayed with us. We went there, and the guy said, if you're going to fight over such a little thing as religion, you got no business getting married. So we walked out of there, and she goes, I'm done. I've seen all I need to see. And I was like, okay, cool. So, I mean, her eyes were open to that. She also worked in the rector as a young girl, so she saw how the priests lived sacrificially. You know what I mean? You know, eating lobster every night and driving their Cadillacs and everything else. You know, that they did, but they were sacrificial. All right, it just represents religion without God. And there's just so much of it that goes on. Notice what it is that these ungodly men do. 
They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Now, the word here, turn, is metatithomy, meta from change or, or place of condition. And tithomy means to, to put in place. Literally, it means to put in another place. They take grace and put it in another place. It's used in Hebrews, Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. And he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Taken up here is in the passive sense, means to be taken or transferred into a, a figurative sense. It would mean to affect a change, a change of condition, to alter something. The same thing as when the priesthood changed in Hebrews 7.12. So they take the grace of God and they change it. They put it in another place. He says, they turn it into licentiousness. Now, this is the Greek word, aselgeia. Originally, it refers to excess or lack of restraint, but came to convey the idea of shameless excess of the absence of restraint in sexual areas. Aselgia was used almost exclusively and especially lewd and sexual immorality. It refers to the kind of sexual debauchery and abandonment that characterizes much of our society today. And it's flaunted almost as a badge of distinction. Aselgia refers to uninhibited sexual indulgence without shame and without concern for what others think or how they may be affected. Now, What were these certain persons teaching about grace that they were changing its place? Historically, I think we have two options here as far as who was doing this. I think it was, we could either say it was the Judaizers or it was the Antinomians. Now, remember I said the phrase crept in unnoticed is, is the Greek word parestuno, and it means to settle in alongside quietly without drawing attention. Well, keeping that in mind that they're kind of sneaking in, Look at Galatians 2, 3, and 4. Now, this text is dealing with the Judaizers. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Yeshua, in order to bring us into bondage. And the Judaizers can't handle liberty, and they're sneaking in. we got to make sure you don't enjoy any liberty. They're false brethren. He calls them false brethren because they're unwilling to accept Titus because of race. You know, he won't do this little thing. He won't become a Jew. We just can't accept him. Exclude him from the Christian family. So the basis of unity in the church for them was race, not grace. Therefore, the apostles saying that since they were relying on these leaders and leading them into a works, grace type of gospel, it was evident they were false brethren. Now, the Greek word here, spy out, means to inspect, to view closely in order to spy out, to plot against. Rather than upholding the liberty we have in Christ Yeshua to accept before God, on, be accepted by God on the basis of grace, they required adherence to Jewish customs to be accepted. They wanted to bring them into bondage. They wanted to bring them back under Torah. <coughs> now, these certain persons... We're teaching, yes, we're Christian. Yes, we're saved by grace. Our sins have been placed upon the Lord, Yeshua, the Christ, 
but we still have to fill in the blank. Be circumcised. Get baptized. Keep the law. Do this. Do that. You know, God said in the book of Genesis, of the man-child who was not circumcised, his soul would be cut off. So they grabbed Genesis 17, 14, and they say, there you go. you got to link circumcision with salvation. See, they don't understand the difference in covenants, and they're mixing everything up. you got to be circumcised, they would say. That's what the Judaizers were telling them. It's just like it is today. There's so many pastors indicating that people have to do something in order to be saved. One of the things you really have to do to tie on the list is you have to tithe to that church. That will get you in the door quicker than anything, okay? So if you really want to get saved by works, you got to tithe to that church. At least that pastor will tell you how saved you are, okay, if you do that. But they want to add something. You know, you need to get baptized, or you need to do this, or you need to do that, or you need to quit doing this, or quit doing that in order to be saved. Well, in Acts chapter 15, we get a little more information about these Judaizers, these Jews who were creeping in unnoticed. And this kind of connects with Jude 4. They're creeping in unawares. Same thing. In Acts 15.1, it says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You're not a Christian. You're not part of the church. You don't have it. But I believed in the Lord, Yeshua the Christ. Nope, doesn't matter. You have to be circumcised. And they're confusing the people. They, these guys didn't understand the grace of God. They didn't understand salvation. God doesn't save you by the work of a man. A man can do nothing. There's no kind of work you can do to be justified in the sight of God. God saves according to the work that Christ did on the cross. Through the obedience of the one, the many shall be made righteous. Romans 5.19 We are righteous because of His obedience, not our obedience. Now notice what Paul tells the believers. Galatians 5.1 It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Keep standing firm. In the Greek here, this is stako. It's a military term. It has the idea you're positioned in a battle. You don't run away. You stand there and you fight. You hold your ground. Paul's saying that you should stand your ground in the midst of the battle. Hold your position while under attack. But what's interesting, he's not telling the Galatians, stand fast in your holiness. We'd expect that. Stand fast in your righteousness. We would expect that. He tells them to stand fast in liberty. (laughs) It's the liberty that they're to defend. It's liberty that they are to guard. That seems strange to us because the church today thinks that Christians have too much liberty. And they want to keep you corralled in. Don't do that. Christians don't do that. They don't? No. Christians, good Christians don't do that. Come back to the fold. Do what we tell you to do. Believers, we are to fight for our freedom. We are to defend our Christian liberty. Because it's been given to us by Christ. Galatians 5.4 says, You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Now what exactly does that mean? They've fallen from grace. Well, I think before we can understand that, you need to ask a few questions. Would you agree with me that this book is written to Christians? 
Galatians 1, 6, 9. Paul told him, if any man preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, to which you have received, they received the gospel, let him be accursed. So they had received the gospel. And they were to keep standing in it. Does this text clearly say that some of the readers have fallen from grace and that some of them were on the verge of doing so? Yes, that's indisputable. The word grace, as used in the New Testament, expresses two meanings. Now, here's what we have to understand. People, I think everybody understands the first meaning of grace. Free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. That's salvation. God gives us grace. We're guilty sinners. But grace is used another way in the New Testament. And this is very important for living, people. It's God's power that enables us to deal with life's circumstances. He, it's enabling grace that we get to live. And the second meaning is encompassing the first because God's enabling power is part of His unmerited favor. So part of God's unmerited favor is the enabling power He gives. But there's a distinction, but yet they're related. Now when we seek God's approval through our efforts, when we think we can do something to earn God's favor, this is pride. It's like, I'll... Do something for you, God. I'll do this. Whatever it is. And the heart of man wants to do that. You want to do something. Offer up something to God, you know. I want to show you how good I am. Well, pride causes us to fall from grace. Because the Bible said God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So when you realize, Lord, I can't do this. I don't have the ability. I'm counting on you to enable me to get, you know, to do this. To seek to be justified or approved by God on our works, that's the height of pride. I'll earn my way right with God. And God resists the proud. We must understand that pride stands in direct opposition of grace. And today, so many people in the church, even if they think they're a Christian, they're trying to earn God's favor by things they do. He'll like me more. I'll be a better one of His favorite if I do this or I do that. It's like the song we sing. I heard a poem, Closer to God, I can never be. Because in the person of Christ, I'm as close as He. You can't get any closer to God. Alright? Positionally, you are in Christ Jesus. You're part of the Trinity, people. I mean, Christ is in the Trinity. You're in Christ. There's, it doesn't get any better than that. Alright? Falling from grace here means that a believer who reverts to human effort to earn God's favor. They've fallen from the principle of grace because they're trying to earn things now. Has fallen is a present experience. Now listen, here's what we have to understand. Falling from grace does not affect their position. They're still Christians. They're still going to heaven. Alright? But they've fallen from the enabling power to live life on a day-to-day basis. Because listen, people, if you don't have the power of God, a lot of experiences you're not going to get through. Sane, anyway, okay? You're not going to make it through without the enabling power of God. And whenever we think we can do anything apart from... And Paul told the Corinthians, let he who thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. So the guy, I got that under control. Oh, that's not an area I have trouble with. I, that scares me to death when someone says that. That's the biggest area of problem you got because your pride thinks you're okay there. It's when you're afraid of something that you guard, you're on the alert. I'm not very strong there, so I've got to watch this here. But he that thinks he stands, take heed. 
So our position is not affected, people. Our position, listen, cannot be affected by anything. Nor height, nor depth, nor created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But our experience in life and the power we have to get through life changes when we don't trust God and aren't dependent upon Him for His grace. The word translated here, have fallen, ekpipto, has used of flowers that wither and fall to the ground. It's used figuratively and refers to the loss of one's grip of grace as a principle to live by. So these false teachers may have been Judaizers, trying to turn the grace of God into works. Now, if you're thinking along here with me, you might be saying, how could they be Judaizers when it says they're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness? Judaizers put people under law, not encourage sin, right? That sounds more antinomian than legalistic. Well, let's look at a verse here in Galatians 5.19. Now, the deeds of the flesh, this is what the flesh produces. And they're evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. This is our same word translated lasciviousness. Paul uses the word flesh here to mean something that's totally human, something with no grace attached, something you're doing all of yourself. This is the works you accomplish. Lasciviousness. So the flesh is what you do in your own power, your own strength. What you can do yourself. It's legalism. Legalism is anything that I think I can do in order to make myself closer to God or right with God. It's human achievement. It's self-righteousness pride. Now let me ask you something. Do legalists, they want to obey every rule, do everything right, do they have a problem with immorality? Because they're counting so much on the flesh to do everything, they are so weak. How many pastors have you seen fall into sin who are standing in that pulpit every week and preach against the sin and they're doing the sin? You're like, what the heck is wrong with that? That's a height of hypocrisy. How many kids do you know that raise up in a legalistic environment and as soon as they get out of that, they go crazy? Because legalism, just you think your strength is the flesh. And therefore, the flesh has its way. And the, the deeds of the flesh are these. This proves you're trying to count you're trying to live by the flesh. And therefore, they just fail. So these Judaizers, they may have been Judaizers trying to destroy grace with works, but they may have been antinomian. Those who taught the church that they could glorify God through their sin. Alright? Huh? Yeah, they, they, they're thinking you glorify God that way. They dismiss the need for moral life, for moral laws of any kind. They just say, you know, listen, we're not under the law. We're free. We can do whatever we want to do. And in a sense, they can do what they want to do. Their position is not affected by what they do. But their life is greatly affected by what they do. I'll tell you, if you want to have the most miserable existence that you can have, here's what you do. You trust Christ by grace through faith and then you live however you want to live. And you're going to find out how miserable you can be on this planet. It's built in. It's built in the laws of God. You're made to follow Him. When you follow Him, things are blessed. Things are happy. Things are good. And that doesn't mean everything goes your way. I'm not talking a health wealth gospel. Things might be really bad on the outside, but you have this peace and contentment within because your God reigns. And anybody who thinks, you know, I can sin and it's okay, but there's people who teach that. Today we see people, they name the name of Christ, 
we see it in churches, we see church leaders, they sin openly and they encourage others to do it. And they make the argument that it's not actually sin, this is okay. People like, you know, these splinter groups that bust off like David Koresh and these different things, they're sleeping with every woman in the group. Because see, this is, I'm the spiritual leader and therefore this is helping me and it's not sin. And You know, they just come up with all kinds of people like, okay, okay. And they follow blindly along with this stuff. And they think they can do whatever they want to do. How many church leaders today will tell you, God wants you happy? That's his number one on God's agenda. He just wants you to be happy. And so if your spouse makes you unhappy, dump them. Get rid of them. Alright? That's perfectly okay. Listen, how many leaders within the church today are saying, homosexuality is not a sin if practiced in a loving, monogamous relationship? I mean, it's just, you know, where do you find that in the Scripture? The Scripture can say whatever they want, but people twist the Scripture and justify. Listen, there are churches today. Churches that are homosexual churches. Sodomite churches. The preachers are Sodomite. The congregations are Sodomite. And they go there and they worship. I don't know who. Because they're violating so many things. Can they be Christian? I think some of them are Christian. But they violated the principles. I knew a man, a good friend of mine's brother, became homosexual. And his brother went after him like crazy. You know, finally got a home. You know, you got to quit this. So he, he left. He realized this is sin. He left the homosexual life and he was living good for a while, and then he caved and went right back to it. All right? Well, then he got AIDS, and he was dying. And I remember he was like 70 pounds before he died. I mean, he was nothing left him, but I'll, I'll never forget this. He said to me, if, God, if I had the opportunity right now for God to heal me, I would tell him, no thank you, because he said, I would rather die in fellowship than live out of it. He said, that life in the pool is too strong. I could not resist it. So I would rather die in fellowship with God. And I was like, wow, that is awesome. That is awesome. Because that is a, and if you, if you want to read a good book on homosexuality, it's called, uh, Jerry Otterbon, I think is the author. He says, how shall I tell my mother? And he talks about the homosexual agenda. And if you got a guy that's a little effeminate, now I'm not talking homosexual, but you know, guys that are a little effeminate, you know, a little, you know, prissy kind of like. All right, these homosexuals, they gear in on this. All right? And they'll go, and because most guys are like, eh, stay away from me, you're a little weird, you know. Well, they'll focus in on this, and they'll pull them into the group. And they go to the group, not for the sex, but for the acceptance. Because that's one of the greatest needs of the human heart, is to be accepted. And so they're accepted by this group, because that's the homosexual agenda. They're out to accomplish some things. But we got people saying, this is okay. It's all right. How many people today, how many preachers today, are seeking to redefine marriage? They're turning the grace of God into a license to sin. Listen, marriage by biblical death. First of all, marriage is ordained by God. God's the one who ordained it. Man didn't think it up. God ordained it. And he said it's between a man and a woman. And that's it. Okay? Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. It doesn't work that way, okay? Not two men, not two women. That is an abomination. What's next in this country? Okay, someone's going to say, well, you know what? Me and my dog are really close. We'd like to get married. What? Where does it stop? Why could? Why would they stop that? Well, if two guys could get married, maybe a guy and his dog should be able to get married. You know, maybe they should start having marriages like that. It's just, it's a perversion. Listen, 
I understand you, you got two homosexuals and they really love each other and, you know, they want to have some rights. Because everybody in our country wants rights, right? Well, then, you know, let's have some sense and let's call it a civil union. Let's call it something. But it's not a marriage. You cannot redefine marriage. And believe me, I'm not accepting of this in any way, shape, or form. I just hate that they're calling it a marriage. That's my biggest problem because it's not. Man and a woman, that's marriage. Purpose of marriage is procreation. How are they going to do that? It doesn't work. You know, the church of Ephesus was on guard against this kind of stuff. Paul tells us, or John tells us in Revelation 2.2, he's writing to the church of Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. So they're checking these guys out. They're taking the Word of God, the Tanakh, they're being just like the Bereans, and they're taking them to the Scripture and saying, no, this is not right what you're teaching here. And people, we have so much more advantage today. All we got to do is when someone's teaching something, get in the book and study it out. Now they say, you have to tithe. And they take you to the Old Testament, and they'll show you, look at right there. And you say, oh yeah, that's right. Except, I think we're under the New Testament. So show me in here where it says to do it. And then they'll be, because it doesn't ever tell you to tithe in the New Testament. Tithing is taxation. It was for Israel to support the government. Our government requires us to tithe today. Okay? You tithe to the government or the IRS will put you in jail. Alright? Same principle. Alright? Jews says these false teachers also deny our only Master and Lord Yeshua the Christ. The word deny here means to disown, to renounce, to refute, to contradict. From the Greek word arneomai. And it literally means to say no. You don't know the person. You're not related in any shape or fashion. The present tense depicts their denial as habitual. They were repeatedly denying, repudiating, disowning Yeshua by their words and deeds. There's like those who Paul describes in Titus 1.6. He says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. Being detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deeds. So they claim they know Him, but they don't live like They profess, that's present tense, but their deeds deny, that's present tense also. They're denying who? Who are they refuting? It is the only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Christ. Master here is despotes. It means one who possesses undisputed ownership, absolute, unrestricted authority. You've heard the word despot. We use that in English. That's a bad word the way we use it. You know, This means a cruel, tyrannical leader. But that's not the Greek word. Despotes just means someone with absolute authority. It's usually used in connection with slaves and masters because they have absolute authority over them. Alright? And I think this word's used because one of the problems with apostasy is the rejection of authority. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen to the rules. It refers to one in supreme authority. Now the word Lord here is kurios. Lord means sovereign, deity. The words Yeshua the Christ refer to the God-man. Yeshua is his human name. It's the name his mama gave him. He was Yeshua. He wasn't Jesus. She never called him that. Okay? She called him Yeshua. Alright? That was his human name. Christ, the Messiah, was his officer appointment. It means chosen. It refers to his deity. Yeshua the Christ is undiminished deity, true humanity in one person forever. Jude put this here because some did not accept the deity of Christ. And that's under attack today. It's been under attack ever since Christ walked on the earth. The deity of Christ. People want to say, well, yeah, he was this, he was that, but he's not God. Listen, 
The Bible from beginning to end talks about the deity. If he was not deity, you're dead in your sins. It's as simple as that. This last part of Jude's fourth verse here, again, is a, he's quoting from Peter. Notice the similarities here. He says, these false prophets also arose among the people, just as there also will be teach, false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive errors. They're sneaking in there. And denying the master who bought them. Again, they're denying Yeshua, bringing swift destruction. There's the judgment. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. All right, so they're, they're denying the Lord. And there's more than one way that you can deny Yeshua the Christ. You can deny him by your life and conduct, as we just saw from Titus. You can deny him by developing false ideas. And like I said, one of the greatest false ideas about Yeshua today is that he's not God. In his book, A Concise Guide to Today's Religions, Josh McDonald says, No matter what the particular beliefs of any cult may be, the one common denominator they all possess is the denial of the biblical teaching on the deity of Jesus Christ. Be very cautious of anybody who tries to deny the deity of Christ. They just want to bring them down to manhood. Bring them down to something lesser. All right? The scriptures are absolutely loaded with references to the fact that Yeshua is Yahweh. The confession of a Christian is Yeshua HaMashiach is Yahweh. Notice what Isaiah writes. See if this sounds familiar to you. Turn to me and be saved. Yahweh is talking here. All right. Look at, read the context when you get home. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. My word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, and every tongue swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? It is Yahweh here, the sovereign God, that salvation will come. And Paul uses Isaiah 45, 23, and Philippians 2, where it is applied to every knee bowing to Christ. Now, what are we going to bow to? Yahweh or Christ? Yes. <laughs> And the ability to move between Yahweh and Christ in applying the scripture about Yahweh to Christ is strong evidence that Paul understood and taught that Yeshua is Yahweh. And this is to be developed by the fathers into Trinitarianism. Alright? Because the Jews all understood, they talked about the two powers of the Tanakh. They understood Yahweh there, but they saw this other power, the angel of Yahweh. And boy, I'll tell you, you want an interesting study. Look, some scriptures, you can't tell who's talking. Is it Yahweh? Is it the angel of Yahweh? It go back and forth between the two of them. And it's like, because they are one in the sense that the Trinity, Yahweh, is the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. Well, as we wrap this up, let me just remind you that Jude uses a triad here also. All right? He's going to use them constantly throughout this. He lists reasons in this verse, why these creepers are deserving judgment. The reason they deserve condemnation is because they are ungodly, they're licentious, and they deny our Lord. So there again, he's going to throw this triad in over and over. He's using this to let every mouth be convicted, you know, every two or three witnesses, make sure this is right, all right? So he's bringing his witnesses. All right, believers, what we have to understand, there's creepers today, just as there was in Jude's day. There's a lot of people, they're standing up, they're talking about the Lord, they're saying night church things, they sound good, but when you get to the very bottom of what's going on, you know, and I'll tell you, I don't want to pick on them constantly, but one of these big creepers is my buddy Joel, okay? I mean, Joel's a creeper, all right? Because he's up there and he's smiling, 
big smile, perfect hairdo, and I want you to know that God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for you. God just wants everything good for you. Never mention sin. No one needs to get saved because no one needs to get saved. You know, and he just, you know, he's been questioned on that. You never talk about sin. Oh, I don't want to bring that up. That's not my kind of thing. I don't want to offend anybody. You know, it's like, okay, keep everybody happy, you know, but you're telling them nothing. But they go to church and they feel like, oh, yes, God wants the best for me in every way. They never have to deal with sin. They never have to trust Christ. They never have to deal with any of that stuff. They just walk in, they feel good, and they walk out. And you got to be careful. It's going on. We have to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And the only thing that will protect us, individuals, from false teaching is a good understanding of the Word of God. That's your only defense, people. You can't count on your preacher. You can't count on anybody else. You need to know the Bible. And the only way you're going to have a good understanding of the Word of God is to spend time in it. Okay? you got to do that. It's not our daily bread. You don't read part of a verse and then somebody's comments on it. Get in the Bible itself and actually read it. Find out what it says. You'll be amazed what's in there. You know, you'll learn and you'll grow. And the more you read it, the more you'll understand it. And it just gets better and better every time. It's more exciting. But then you understand and you have an idea of the whole counsel of God. So when someone tries to tell you something, you say, well, that says that there. But you got to understand the context here. Who is he talking to? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you have given us the word of God, Lord, that every one of us can have a copy. We are so blessed in this country, Lord. We can spend all the time we want in it. We have so, so much leisure time in this country. And yet, we seem to neglect the word of God. Yet, we want, we want you to bless us. We want to know you. We want to be close to you, but we don't do the very thing we need to do to do that. Spend time learning who you are, walking in your will, understanding you, learning your mind that we might live for your glory. Lord, I thank you for your eternal patience with us. I pray you would make us people of the book that we might be guarded against those creepers who would try to destroy the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen. Amen.